Welcome to Let's Face the Facts, the rewatch podcast for the classic sitcom, The Facts of Life. Join us each week as we synopsize, analyze, criticize, and ultimately idolize the show. And now, here's your host of Let's Face the Facts, the wonderful David Almeida! Thank you, Matthew Arter. Welcome back. It's another week, another show. Thank you for downloading and pressing play. This week, Matthew and I are joined by Alice Fairfax. Alice is a former performer, currently a copywriter and publicist in the professional theater arena. Uh, Like Kate O'Neill last week, I first met Alice when she and Matthew were on the audition team at the American Idol Experience at Disney's Hollywood Studios. I was a field producer there, so I was doing a different job. I didn't get to hang with them that much. And for that reason, I don't know Alice as well as Matthew does. So this was uh, educational for me. I was really, really happy to have time with her and, and truly to get to know her better. So uh, I'm really happy to be sharing that with you guys. Now, before we get started, I do need to welcome a new tootie fruity, Mark B. Hey, Mark B. Mark B. may or may not be someone by the name of Mark Baratelli. I don't know if he would want me to give his full name here, but Mark's been on the show a couple of times already. Uh, Now that he is a Patreon supporter of the show, I can give him this official shout out and be reminded that I am overdue for having him back on the show. So I need to make that happen very soon. But in the meantime, if you would like to be like Mark B, you can support the show financially. Just click on any of the links in the show notes or on this episode's webpage. And until that time, please join me in welcoming Mark B to the family. Moving on, this week, Alice Fairfax joined me and Matthew in watching Season 7, Episode 11, called We Get Letters, and it had an original air date of November 30th of 1985. I think we're ready to jump on in. Let's face the facts with Alice Fairfax. Don't you dare ever tell me he will care. I'm certain. I think that every time I see your name. And I'm wondering if you ever watched The Facts of Life when you were a child. Well, you know, here, this was fascinating to me to watch it because I did not. I lived in Sweden. I lived in Stockholm, Sweden from 1978 through 1981. My dad was the naval attache there. And we did not get American television back then. Now it was similar here in the United States where there were networks and channels and you watched things when they told you to watch them. But in Stockholm being a socialist country, the two television stations there were run by the government. And so if a program was going to come on the the television was just off all day Mm -hmm. there was not daytime programming wow and so the television would come on at seven say for a seven o'clock showing of the muppet show and so at five maybe 10 minutes to seven a screen would come on with the picture of a clock 
with the hands and it would tick off. And instead of music in the background or news or anything, it was bird calls. <laughs> and so you sat and watched the hands tick. And I remember the Muppet Show and soap, but I wasn't allowed to watch soap. Oh, scandalous. Yeah. yeah as you can imagine. Um, wow. And so we watched the Muppet Show. So I missed the facts of life starting. And then by the time that I got here, I was 15 or 16, something like that. And so I, I just kind of missed it. Mm -hmm. And I, I had a little bit of an awareness of the facts of life, certainly probably the song more than anything, and that they were girls at a boarding school. That yeah. I could, like, I understood that, and I understood little bits of it. Um, so, what? So, watching this episode, you're like, who the f heck what is are this? these people? Because wow. they're not in a, they're not in a, a they're not in and a. Like, I had a little inkling about different strokes, like a little tiny. Oh, and we watched Benson. We watched Benson a oh, lot. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So, like, I, you know, that sitcom setup that format and this is such that except for not at this point in this episode i was like oh oh they're not in school <laughs> something has happened to their sweater vests oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's the store okay well we have to talk about all of these things yeah it was like watching a i was like it was like watching a cultural documentary for me Oh. Because I missed, I missed so much of what it was uh, like to be an American teenager. Yeah. Because by the time I got here, I had been in this international school. I had been in this different, very different atmosphere. There were 30 of us in our class and I got here and I came, I actually came to Orlando. I went to Water Park High School and there were 3,000, something like that. And then there were people that did the cheerleading and there was the this and the that. And I just was, I, you know, I hadn't ever shaped my legs. I hadn't oh. ever, I mean, just like, I just didn't, I didn't know you, what yeah. was happening. And they were all, I mean, if you walk down Park Avenue and see the women that look my age, they all look like that then. Mm -hmm. They all had fabulous handbags to go to high school. I did you go to school with the wonderful Delta Burke? I did not. She I think was you're a little young. Before my time. She was before my time. Yeah. Well, it's just fascinating the idea, not just that you weren't aware of the facts of life, but that you were not aware of American culture yeah, in the just, 80s, that you didn't experience the 70s and the transition. You were just dropped into the deep end of the 80s pool. Totally what? dropped into the deep end. What a freak totally. show. I, I, I totally understand you say, I, no. I, I feel like there's a movie there or something it like <laughs> that's yes, all of the, all of the eighties teenage movies are, were about me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the fish out of water. And, oh, yeah. just, I mean, yeah, mm -hmm. it, I was, I was completely lost, yeah. completely lost, had no social references, no cultural references, didn't, didn't get it at all and so watching this i was like oh okay okay <laughs> i wow and, 
why don't you tell us about the nuts and bolts of this episode, David? You're the host, for God's sake. I would love to tell you the nuts and bolts, Matthew. We are about to discuss with, did I actually technically introduce you or welcome you? Alice Fairfax, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. you here. Thank you so much. We are about to discuss season seven, episode 11, called We Get Letters. And the original air date was November 30th of 1985. And I forgot to look up where the title comes from. Is that a reference to something? I think it's just a reference to like that term. Oh, we get letters. We get, oh, I see. About <laughs> like, like Johnny Carson talking about people complaining. Like, you know, like... You know, you know, what, well, how everybody in the 70s used to say, we get letters. <laughs> Even I okay. don't think anybody ever said that, Matthew. This was a mistake, clearly, <laughs> to invite Miss Alice Fairfax on. <laughs> but there was the Letterman, when, when David Letterman would go to the viewer mail, later in the Letterman run, there was a little thing saying, we get letters, we get tons and tons of letters, letters. Wasn't there? I will, I will have to check with my son on but that. He this, is the talk show host expert, and he will uh -oh. be able to find yeah. that information for us. Uh-huh. Well, I didn't know if it was like a specific, it's like, ugh, David, Ned Beatty said it at the crux of the dramatic moment in this movie. You know what I mean? I, I didn't know if it was a hard reference or just a shitty title, because many cases, they're just shitty titles. I, I'm... I believe that the writers would not have worked that hard. Having seen this episode, <laughs> I feel that, that well, Matthew's answer is probably the best. There was a, thank you. There was a Perry Cuomo song called We Get Letters. Well, that, I bet that was it. A Perry what song? A Perry Cuomo song. I believe it's Perry Como, like Como Esta Usted. What did you call me? No. <laughs> okay, so it's a Perry Como song. That is in alignment I, with the vaudevillian middle-aged writers who seem to be the ones punching up these scripts for teenage characters. Punching up. Wow. That yeah. is very generous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this episode was written by, uh, well, I'm sorry, we have a team once again. It did not, it took a village to make this episode. The story was by Deidre Fay and Stuart Wolpert. They are regulars in the writer's room. They are producers on the show. Uh, but the teleplay itself was written by a woman named, and this is not a joke, Susan yeah, be. Beavers. Mm -hmm. Susan be. Beavers. Okay. I'm, no, I'm, not, I'm not gonna, gonna touch it. Not gonna touch it. Yeah, I, I feel that that may be a nom de plume. Do you, do you like the name Beavers, Matthew? I'm just surprised you're not going to touch it. <laughs> well, due to my sexual orientation, I... Anyhow. Don't uh, go there with Alice in the room. No, we don't go there. No, oh. Very proper. Highbrow, highbrow. You were talking about being DP'd in the A a few minutes ago. I didn't say it out loud, though, did I, David? Did I? I spelled it out. <laughs> as she sits there sipping her La Croix. It's La Croix, darling, La Croix. La Croix, darling. <laughs> Susan Beavers would go on to write and produce for Empty Nest, Nurses, 
The Office, but not the Steve Carell Office, the short-lived sitcom called The Office in 1995 that Valerie Harper starred in, which according to, I think it was IMDb, that it was an attempt to do an office comedy loosely based on Upstairs Downstairs. Okay, um, as well as Dharma and Greg, but Susan Beaver's main credit in her IMDb page is that she would go on to produce or consulting produce or supervising produce or executive produce two and a half men, like all of them, like all 200 episodes. Oh. She was in some type of a producer capacity, occasionally also writing. So, so she's seen life. Yeah. She's really, <laughs> she's, she's been, really been through it. Been through the trenches uh, with two and a half men. But that came after this. This is the only episode of The Facts of Life that she would write. And uh, I do want to give her some props because she incorporates, I believe I counted three show Bible moments. And when I say that, Alice, I mean references to other things in the history of the show, the Facts of Life cinematic universe, or the folk you, as we call it, that she references actual things that happened in actual episodes. And uh, I don't know if it was her or, like I said, the others in the writer's room who punched it up, but uh, I always love when they do that. That's, that's a very happy thing for me. But you did fail to mention that Susan Beaver's, um, Nancy McKeon was such a fan of, of Susan's Beaver <laughs> that she actually took her to Style and Substance starring um, Nancy McKeon and the wonderful Jean Smart, his dear friend. Uh, I currently can't talk about her because I'm in litigation with her over the TV show Hacks because they clearly stole my made-up life and turned it into a, a sitcom. But, you know, Gene Smart and I will get back together. We're friends. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. That makes me happy. Uh, and the episode was... And the episode was directed by John Boab, who is the in-house director. He pretty much directs the majority of the Facts of Life's and has for the last couple of seasons and will continue into the future. So now, Alice Fairfax, yeah. this is the time of the show where I like to put our guest on the spot and ask you if you would please provide a one to two sentence synopsis of this entire episode, just a quick, quick abbreviation similar to a listing you might find in a TV guide. I would say that after some falderall in the shop, Edna is visited by an old friend who brings with her a startling revelation, startling and heartbreaking revelation for both women. <gasps> nice. That's what I felt. Very nice. Good. Very good. And no spoilers. Mm -mm. Oh, and no. and had you gone on too long and had your brief synopsis uh, gotten uh, a little too unbrief, Matthew would have berated and scolded you. So you dodged that bullet. People do it, Alice. And it's like they've never looked at a fucking TV guide before. It's like I'm an actual copywriter. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. We appreciate your brevity. <laughs> <laughs> So are we ready to jump in with the microscopic dissection of this episode? <laughs> so we start in the store 
at over our heads. Did you have any idea where the fuck you were when you started watching this? I I watched the episode three times to Ooh. watch. I had to watch the opening three times because I could not grasp what was going on, where they were, why St. Elmo's Fire was playing so aggressively loudly to open this episode. I know, what was that about? They paid and money for that shit. I, I, 1985, I was in college, so I saw St. Elmo's Fire, very, very important film for me, 1985. <laughs> and so when that music came on, I got kind of like a, oh, oh, this is exciting. And then it just was, I couldn't figure out, were they playing it for us, the TV viewing audience, or was it pretending to be background music in the store? I, I, I couldn't tell, it remains a mystery to me. Do you, either of you have a? I, it, you're absolutely right in your description. It was assaulting. It was like I, I did feel assaulted with it, um, but they have been doing that recently with this move to the newer hipper over our heads. Like one week it opened with to the beat of the rhythm of the night. And this week it was St. Elmo's Fire. Yes. Um, yes. So, so nice. So the, the episode starts with this uh, soundtrack accosting us. And while it's happening, uh, Joe, Tootie, Natalie, and Andy are removing crumbled up newspapers from the front display window and putting them in the trash. And initially I thought, oh, did this, did they get broken into? Did they get vandalized? I can't remember. And what, what is it? Matthew, tell us what, what this is actually they're doing. That's what I thought it was as well, but apparently it was just some art that Blair decided should go in there their display window, I guess. I, she I wondered if that, I that's why I watched it three times to watch the beginning of this three times because I kept thinking, this is a continuation. This is continued. So we saw there must've been a camera shot of the outside of the display that the girls didn't like, that they thought they would throw away because there would have to be some context to how is this just opening on the blaring music and them shoving a newspaper in a garbage? Like, and I couldn't, like they were talking, but they were crunching newspapers. So I couldn't really understand what was this? Was it trash? Was it garbage? And finally on the third viewing, oh, Blair had created something that they didn't like. Yeah, it was some type of a of a display that somehow apparently Blair was left in charge of doing the latest window display. Well, and she wears a suit. And she does, yes. And what they one of them says, I think she was trying to say something about space in journalism. Uh, really? Last week you were a newscaster and you wouldn't run the stories that your best friend wanted you to read for a stupid grade. I don't think Blair has anything to say about journalism after the show we watched last week, Alice. Well, and again, Tootie's line about space and journalism, if we had seen the display. True, true. Potentially, this could have made sense. 
I think mm-hmm. it left the the writers were leaving it up to our imagination about how bad it was. I think they were okay. giving us permission to to think, oh, it must have been really bad if everybody hated it. And it yeah. was, you know, and also I think it was a poke at that because um, they're all vaudevillian old old people writing this. I think it was a poke at like, oh, you know, that new age art that nobody understands. Yeah. You know, she filled the thing <laughs> with newspaper. What's that about? Yeah. Like, so I think it was both that. But yeah, I, I didn't. It. I, I agree that that is definitely it's like these kids say the, they nail garbage to a piece of wood and they call it art. What is that? It's yeah. yeah. I, I really love that, Matthew, that you can intuit the motivation of the writer's room. I'm really, <laughs> I really love that you, you just can place yourself spiritually, like on an astral plane in that room. And yeah. you get I'm, them. I'm the level headed one here in this, in this <laughs> one, David or Alice. I am. I'm the one that I'm the voice of reason, um, if you will. And I think you will. So Andy suggests, uh, that, well, well, then the tactic is- Hold, hold. Let's, <laughs> can we discuss Andy? <laughs> as, as I said the name Andy, Alice started waving her arms and I knew, exa- I was like, oh fuck, that's right. We have to tell her who the fuck this kid Andy is. Okay, and I, okay, now I have a relationship. She did not have one with me, but I have a relationship with Patty Duke. And as Do soon you? as that child's face came on, I was like, oh, that's Patty Duke's son. That has to be Patty Duke's son. Mm-hmm. That is Patty Duke and John Aston's son. Correct. I did not know she had two acting sons in mm-hmm. her family. When, which I, is why you will find as you watch the series. Um, his acting is on a completely different level than everyone else because clearly his mom was like, "Okay, we're going to do some line readings Let's before you go out this there." Bad boy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> razor sharp timing. He is fan fucking tastic, and Depth you know, emotion, lovely, lovely, authenticness to him. Yes. And they gave him this horrible storyline about wanting to be a mod. Like, could there have been anything more? <sighs> fabulously 1985 than being in a Spencer's gift store talking about being a mime. That's like, well, this, this is it. They have arrived. Yeah. It's like, yeah, he suggests being a mime because he's learning about it in his drama class. The girls are like, well, we were thinking of coming up with something to maybe replace this display that would soften the blow when Blair discovers right. we've taken it down. But not sell things, not be no. a sales tactic. Uh, no, not at all. This is a freaking art installation. No. You'll find that sales is not at the top of their list when it comes to things that have to do with the shop, Alice. No. Half the time, no the one's minding the shop. The shop. Over the what? Over our heads. Yeah. Because financially, they were in over their heads, and yet... Because That's... high, because high as a kite wouldn't throw him off the the, the trail enough. <laughs> Cokey McSnorts a lot. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah. So Andy, by the way, is just a neighborhood boy who saw a sign that there was help wanted, and he applied. We know at, at the point, moment. Now this is we're getting very far. I'm getting farther in the episode. At one point, um, I I think Mrs. Garrett says, "Okay." Okay, Andy, we'll see you later, or something like, like, okay, you go. 
And I'm like, where did, where did he go? What does he, where <laughs> Wait, does he go? He doesn't live there. Not yet. We know he's got parents. He's talked about parents and there's been reference to a sister. We've never seen them, but then later at some point, and I don't remember well enough. So I'm kind of waiting for this all to happen at the end of the season. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, his, his parents, I think they very quickly are like, oh, well, they were foster parents. Yeah, that's the deal. And for some reason they could. And then there, wasn't there something he was living with his grandmother, Matthew? Yeah. Yes. Like they kind of changed their stories along the way, but Andy ends up being an orphan. And when Cloris Leachman joins the cast to replace Charlotte Ray next season, uh, he ends up moving in with them. She becomes his foster mom and eventually adopts him. That would be a reasonable thing to do if Cloris Leachman showed up. I mean, really. uh, of course, if, if Cloris Leachman <laughs> had showed up on my draw, I'd have been like, adopt me. All right, I'm here. I want to be, I want to be your kid. I want to see this crazy 24 seven. But um, so much. we are predisposed so by cousin Oliver syndrome. We're predisposed to hate the addition of a child. Oh, the girls are getting a little old, getting a little teenagery. Better add a cute little kid. And I, other than he's a little horny for a child. We've called him the horny child That's before always a hilarious gag though isn't it though got a random extra child round yeah children and sex i think that is always a winning combination I, comedically I speaking i i think almost every sitcom in the 80s probably there was it was like this bizarre like no you're right you know scott Ugh. bayo flipping his collar up and hey like what i you were 12 yeah but andy's suggestion that they use a mime and he, it would be him is immediately met with the typical thing. No, mime terrible. That's a terrible idea. So then Blair shows up and we get a little dose of the girls doing what Matthew loves to see. What do they do, Matthew? They have to spend at least I counted eight minutes of the show doing sitcom lying, Alice. And I just, it's such an insult. They, the writers have, have trusted us to, to, to visualize the hideousness of Blair's window display. They don't trust us enough to know that the girls are lying to Blair. So we have Even to sit through the whole- Even though they set it up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you want to know what we're doing? And I'm going to tell you, it's a mime. I was surprised as well. Yeah. Just yeah. There were uh, uh, vandals. Yeah. And, and when we showed up, they scattered. So they got away. Uh, yeah. That's the ticket. Yeah. Hate it, yeah. Hate it. That is yeah. a big Matthew peeve. Uh, but the sad thing is, or is it the happy thing, is that they got nothing else other than landing on, and we're going to replace it with a. Uh, uh, mime we got nothing else the mime the mime is what they had to decide to do to save face and to keep Blair from being too upset that they just destroyed her beautiful work of art then Mrs. Garrett comes in and mail mail call yes and George Clooney's there yeah like like he pops in sure and is he like um it, Go, speculate. I'm, I love. I love well, where this is going. Now I've Take lost a guess. His now I've lost his name, but the the guy that used to fix everything in the apartment of Schneider. Bonnie. What? Thank you. 
Schneider. Is he like the super? Yes. Is he, is he, does he wander by and read? After, after watching it three times, I discovered that the newspaper Mrs. Garrett gives him is the Kuwait Times. That is a show Bible moment that I am happy that they refer okay. back to. I was hoping that that had some yes. reference because I thought, I, I, like I yeah. didn't get any of the jokes between him and Natalie yeah. after because I didn't didn't understand her say, didn't the understand Kuwait, the Kuwait Times, yeah. Well, what ha happened was George was the contractor who helped them rebuild burnt up Edna's edibles into sure. over our heads. But he had recently returned to town when they hired him because he had been in Kuwait for a couple of years installing hot tubs in uh, rich oil sheiks houses. So that's where he has his contracting background. But his dad owns the hardware store across the street. So that's why George Clooney is kind of hanging around and on hand. But what brought him initially- right. it's, it's not that feathered hair. No, it's not, it's, that. it's not the bulge in his jeans that Matthew loves looking at every single week. You're acting, Alice, like this is harder to comprehend, to jump into than the Marvel universe. <laughs> <laughs> like, this, is, this is a lot of backstory we're throwing at you. Yeah, so George uh, with had- Go ahead. Well, uh, with the Kuwaiti Times, it always comes, you should know, for future reference, um, we get a good old-fashioned 1980s Islamophobic reference. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, where are we at in the Gulf War? I can't quite remember. I remember Libya. 89. During the, the 80s. Gulf War, Gulf War was 89, yeah. I remember Libya being a problem. <sighs> and Re Reagan sending jets. Yeah. yeah. Or something. But, but the so first that whole area was yeah. yeah it it was it was tough rife for comedy rife <laughs> yeah. yeah but the original time that George Clooney set foot into their home and on the show was hey uh, I have a subscription to the Kuwaiti Times and I think it was delivered to the wrong address because they're across the street. So that's why his newspaper is being delivered to them. And could we, let's go back over all of these wonderful Islamophobic jokes. I think we should really oh. spend some time with them. Okay. He starts doing the crossword puzzle, which is apparently in English, which is sure. apparently using our Phoenician, thank the Phoenicians alphabet. Uh, so he's like, what's a five letter word for water storage? And Natalie says, basin. And he goes, nah, camel. What's a four-letter word for tricky arrangement? And Natalie says, hoax? And he says, OPEC. Fabulous. And then yeah. comedy rule of threes, what's a five-letter word for home entertainment? And Natalie says, harem. harem. And he's like, cable, get your mind out of the gutter, Natalie. Ha-ha! <laughs> because all, those, all them people over there have harems. That's how they live over there. It's so fucking offensive. It's a, yeah. it's a joke in our home all the time. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Because my husband is from Egypt. He's not from Kuwait, but from Egypt. Mm. But we talk often about the second wife. And, you know, he's allowed to have three, apparently. And mm. I am very excited for this. I have a list of chores. I have things for <laughs> her to do. Nice. I'm, 
completely so long, fine. You get to be the head wife, right? Is that I'm the term? chief wife? Yeah, chief wife. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Delegate that shit, girl. Do I, it. I am ready. He is a lot of work, and anytime <laughs> he's a lot of work, I'm like second wife. Come on, Come on. nice. Anytime it's too much for me, ah. I bring up the second wife. Uh, so to abandon this line of comedy, Natalie yes. just throws up her hands and says, "Ugh, just read me the Dear Abdul column. Oh, I missed that. Hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's comedy right there. <sighs> but Perfect. Well, I'm, somehow, I'm very grateful to know what that was about. Yeah. Somehow, somewhere, Mrs. Garrett has a letter from her friend, no. Nope, nope, nope. Joe, else. Joe just says, Joe just says, oh, hey, your friend Gwen is coming over tomorrow for, for on her way to Boston or something like that. Yeah. And oh, that's right. I, I mixed up my notes here. Yeah. I just love how, was that how it was in the 80s? I'm far too young. Like, did, <sighs> did people just like, I mean, she hadn't spoken to actual Edna and said, I'm coming. She's like, just called the house and was like, first of all, how'd she get that number? Second of all, um, <laughs> third of all, like how she just, did you just call whole, people and like leave a message say, hey, I'm, I'm coming to your house on tomorrow. No, that there, did not there happen. There were times in the seventies and the eighties where people would knock on your door. That sure. we, we used, that used to happen. We used to have friends knock on your door. Weird. Um, yes, we, we never do that now. No. So we're two minutes into this episode, David. We are. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. When you said this was an hour and a half, I thought that's ridiculous. There's no well, possible way that you well, no, no. can we're, we're we're gearing. This. We've we've we're laying the foundation. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna start yeah. moving a little bit but quicker here. I, I will say, Matthew, that there are many. All of the encounters with Gwen were incomprehensible to me about her visit. Of like, so I'm here. But I'm going to go freshen up for several hours. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah. yeah. I'm here to visit you. I'm on my way somewhere. But I'm I, like several times. You, you a, are not wrong. You are not were, wrong. Like, so, so yeah. yeah. So she just called. No, I would think she would have sent a letter or a postcard saying. Yeah. Why couldn't there have been a letter in that stack of letters of mail from that Mrs. Garrett received? from Gwen, that would have been business. perfectly appropriate, yes. The, the other thing that, besides the sitcom lying, another thing that I found happening a lot with the actors was the kind of the hand wringing that actors do, um, the touching of things, the hand, like okay. when, at, when an actor doesn't know what to do, when the director doesn't give them anything to do, they wander and there was, several moments of wandering or hand like touching like they just didn't they just didn't have anything to do so somehow like if a director had been watching that scene they probably would have said why, why isn't Edna why is Edna bringing in the news without yeah. having news of this friend why wouldn't we have that yeah why wouldn't those go together yeah agreed but agreed. I don't think the director was watching <laughs> that's <laughs> arguable <laughs> Yeah. So somehow we get to them talking about Mrs. Garrett and Gwen, my favorite sitcom trope, creating a history that was never there before. 
Gwen. Oh, of course, your friend Gwen, all the times she would come up to visit. I'm going to say that again, that she would come up to Peekskill from Boston. Um, look, look at a map, Peekskill. Peekskill is south of Boston. A little bit. You, you could say over, come over, come down, but is not it? come up. I didn't know that. No. Yeah. No. If I mean, if we were up at like Syracuse or Schenectady or mm. way up there, that's upstate. But nope. No, Albany would be north. But uh, no, no, this is this is south of, of Boston. But Mrs. Garrett and Gwen grew up together in Appleton. Uh, they say they shared boyfriends. Well, until her husband Jack came along and then Mrs. Garrett waxes interestingly about how he was funny and bright and Paul Newman eyes and he was quite a catch. Well, we have to set up the subtext of leaving us. This is like an episode that they took from the play Doubt, David. And Edna is the child molesting priest where you spend the whole time wondering, did she do it or didn't she? Until yeah. the very end. So at some point, somehow with talking about her past, they try to set up this weird, this weird transitional thing of Joe saying, wow, you know, sometimes I wonder when I'm looking back at my life and I'm not sure, am I going to have nothing? And I don't know if yeah. you knew this, Alice. Clearly but... no memories. And so Mrs. Garrett says, like, like Joe talks about, like, she's not going to have any pleasant memories to, to remember back her childhood about. childhood friends. Yeah, of her childhood friends, of these women she's been living with for six years. Me. Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Garrett says, like when you had Blair wrestle the mascot. That actually happened. This is another show Bible moment. Season six, so, episode so, nine. So the mascot and the Kuwaiti Times are show Bible moments. Correct. But the BFF that I grew up with Never heard of her. Never fucking heard of her. Never had reference to her. Absolutely not. No. Gotcha. Okay. We've Perfect. we've rarely known Edna to have any friends. True. Um, so this is it's quite interesting to find out that this is one of her best friends that we <laughs> never met before. And oldest friends. Yeah. yeah. Um. So then next scene, we're in the living room. Andy is standing on the coffee table practicing his mime. Honestly, not doing a bad job with it for He's his age. A adorable he's very adorable mm -hmm. just and, so committed and again he's getting lessons from two of the best in the business for god's sake true i mean i'm not a huge fan but fucking john aston sign me up for a, Amazing. a session yeah. with him yeah not can we get the patty duke john aston master class fuck <laughs> she, yeah she does have an oscar doesn't she patty duke <laughs> she for, i, I like, believe when so. she was when she was 12 or something yeah. like when she was his age he's 12 right now i wonder if she brings that up to him when he's like i don't want to run lines she goes i had an oscar when i was your <laughs> age mac so sit down open the script if you're gonna be in a shitty sitcom you're gonna be good you're going to be the best thing in that shitty sitcom. Exactly. The best line. Mm -hmm. As he goes on, notice if you watch it three times, he, he actually shows fatigue as the mime. It's a fatiguing work. Oh, God, yeah. Holding your body in a particular way over and over again. And, and he shows that fatigue in his body. It's quite impressive. Mm hmm. 
Well, then Gwen arrives. It is played by Anne Jackson, who is uh, a kind of a formidable actress with a lot of credits, but she doesn't have a career defining role or film or appearance mm. that I think and I wish her career had. Mm. She was the I wife know. of Eli exactly Wallach. How that feels. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she was the wife of Eli Wallach and uh, they worked like together. She, Anne, was married to Eli. Correct. Not played his wife. Correct. She was in real life his wife. And they were both big method uh, actor studio people, both of them. And uh, she won a Tony Award for supporting actress in Patty Chayefsky's Middle of the Night back in the late 50s, I think. Perfect. And she also has a couple of Obie Awards for Off-Broadway and a lot of films. And I'm like, I don't know any of these. I haven't seen them. Nothing stands. It, it's not like one of those, you know, oh, oh, she was the grandmother in Meet the Fockers. Okay, there it is. We don't have that. No. Which is a shame because she is a wonderful actress. I mean, definitely old school trained. She still has that perfect front forwardly placed elocutionary almost 1940s style of talking. Did you notice that? Oh, can we discuss the gloves and the coat? Please do, please do. I, now, if I may, Matthew, you put yourself on an astral plane with the writers. I, I went to her, into her head, and she has this entrance, the door opens, there is not a beat, there's not a second, and the lines are, well, are you gonna invite me in? And Edna says, I'm sorry, I just realized just now, but there's no beat, there's no like, no. are you gonna invite me in? Uh, uh, oh, I'm so sorry. No, it's just, my next line is, I'm sorry, I was just thinking about you. Like there's no, there's no time. So the director has not directed this moment. No. And then she enters and Edna does this bizarre removal of her coat, like reaches around her, this bizarre removal of the trench coat that is delicately on her shoulders. And then she has these almost, almost elbow length leather purple gloves on, Anne does, not Mrs. Hmm. Garrett, Gwen. Yeah that she has to take off in an ex extreme sort of way. And I felt like Anne was a theater actor and got on that set and went, what the hell is <laughs> happening here? No one has given me anything to do. I have this ridiculous entrance. Get me some gloves. Yeah, <laughs> I demand them. A coat. I, need, I need business. I need yeah. stage business. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't it, doubt it. This is what I felt that it happened <laughs> because it was just bizarre. I, I, I you, you are not wrong. Oh my God. Uh, I watched yeah. it three times, David. I watched it three times. Yeah, you've watched it more times than I have. So uh, yeah. <laughs> so, wait, but yeah, the whole thing of you writing wise, it couldn't have been door open, Gwen, Edna, and then a beat. Well, are you going to invite me in? <laughs> That's all it needed. Just needed acknowledgement. Just open the door. Well, are you gonna? Je and Jesus, if the director fuck, had lady. been watching that moment, he yeah. would have seen 
oh, the on the page, yeah, it says, are you going to invite me in? Yeah, we need a little something to happen there. Yeah, and so I believe Anne took it upon herself to, get, uh, all right, give me some gloves. I'm yeah, gonna, I'm going to do some business then. Well. Uh, the elocutionary speaking continues where yes. she comes in and says, oh, I hoped you'd all be here. No R, here. And she does it the whole, it's like, okay, clearly this is just the way she was trained that this minute, she's supposed to be from Appleton, Wisconsin with Mrs. Garrett, <laughs> but then studied clothing design in New York City Fashion design. What? Fashion not design. Fashion. I'm sorry. Fa Clearly not, fashion. Not clothing, darling. It's fashion. Um, and then and then what was she wearing? What uh, she, she it was just matronly. It was 80s. Like I like I think my mom would have worn that. Yes, gotta carry that purse with her. Keep the purse. Second. Uh, there are so many times though in sitcoms where you have characters who don't have purses, yeah, sure. who just walk in. In, in a head-to-toe dress, and it's like, well, where's your lipstick? Where's your keys? You didn't put your keys in. Okay. Yeah. Another, another television thing that makes me crazy is nobody ever locks their door when they come in. Now, mm -hmm. this, was, this door was open and closed, but watch Homeland. She's, do you watch Homeland? No, She's I don't. She's a CIA agent. The woman ha has not locked her door, ever. And, and she's bipolar, she's, right? She's bipolar CIA agent. <laughs> But I, why would I lock my door? Everything's fine. Oh my God. Lock the door. Yeah, Seinfeld. All people always talk about the way they just came and went. And it's like, you live in Manhattan. You live in freaking uh, crime capital of the world, dude. It's ridiculous. But yeah. Anyway, but very similar. The, the no purse, no keys. Yeah. But, but no, not Ann Jackson. Wife no, no, no. Wallach of the neighborhood playhouse. Clearly, <laughs> clearly, we had a purse, we had gloves. So when she comes in oh. with her, I hoped you'd all be here. All the girls are like, oh yeah, it's you, person that we totally know and have met before, hi. Uh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, you keep believing that, honey. I'm not buying it. But um, so they say they've got a lot of gossip to catch up on. And uh, when they talk about their past, it is revealed that um, Edna was back in Wisconsin with her two babies. So these are her two sons, uh, Alex and uh, uh, Raymond. Raymond. I'm like, I could see an R. It's all I could see. Alex and Raymond. Uh, and then she says, uh, but Gwen was in New York City studying fashion design and Mrs. Garrett's husband, was on the road a lot. So this is where this, this tracks because we know that she eloped with a vacuum cleaner salesman the night of her senior prom. And I speculated, it's weird that she talked about him like some vacuum cleaner salesman versus Mr. Garrett, my ex-husband, the father of my children. It was weird that she referred to him that way, but it seems well, no, as though- I did feel like, you know, in the 70s and, and then in the 80s, we didn't, you didn't talk about divorce the way you talk about it. No. And so she'd never, she did, she even used the word separated at one time, I well, thought in this you episode. know why? And I was like, oh, 
I, I thought that was very bold. Yeah. Well, you know why? That was necessary because she says when she separated from her husband, she had to say later when the divorce happened, it was Gwen's husband who was an emotional support for her. So we had to track that timeline like, oh, no, she couldn't be already divorced. We have to get Jack into the picture first. Jack, Gwen's husband, Mrs. Garrett's husband was Robert. Um, but anyway, this tracks. This is a good thing in that it tracks. I'm not sure the writers put that much thought into it, but it does at the very least not contradict anything we've heard before. And like I said, it kind of does. We only could speculate that the vacuum cleaner salesman was also Mr. Garrett, or was it a husband that she might've had before Mr. Garrett, but that was so not done in those days. Yeah. Anyway, um, and that was divulged by the way, in season six, episode 17 called Two Guys from Wisconsin. <laughs> anyway, uh, we talk about the, this you is- know, and, never mind season two where Mr. Garrett returns and he's a gambler. And that was why she left him. So, I mean. Well, I mean. Wasn't he, he a card player or something when he came back? And she was like, he gambled. That was season, that was season one, like episode two. That was a very early episode, yeah. either two or three. But all we knew was that he was a gambler. I don't think it was ever said what his job was or why he was coming through town. Uh, so thankfully their lack of information there allows for this information to be conveniently put in there. I, I would love to think that they had mapped that out from day one, but we know they fucking didn't. Anyway, um, this is the moment, Alice, you were talking about this, how, oh, Gwen, thank you for coming. You're here to visit. She says, well, I just got checked into the hotel. Well, you're going to stay here. No, I'm gonna stay at the hotel. And uh, well, let me show you our new store. No, I'm gonna go back to the hotel and freshen up for a couple of hours. What the fuck did you come oh, here hours. for? What? It, the whole thing was so strange. So but, strange. Like if you're visiting your friend, they have this whole discussion about how we are going to gossip. Except for not now. Yeah, I have the, to the freshen whole, up for hours. Yeah, the whole we have to telegraph the framework of this friendship, which is so important and so real that we've never heard about before. And then well, any scene that the two of them are in together, it 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 is an off Broadway play. Yeah, very place. true. So the next scene, we go to the shop, and Andy is performing his mime in the window. Uh, there's a man and a woman in the shop asking Edna. That's the best part about something where we were thinking of getting this for my mother-in-law. The man's clearly the dude's mom. And it's like an inflatable French maid. What the fuck was that? <clears throat> it was a Spencer Gifts display, David. Is that what it was? Uh, it was like a, a yeah. <laughs> but this is my favorite, <clears throat> again, a director Mrs. who does not, does not know what to do, hasn't oh, okay. Her response is, why don't you go look at something over there? Thank yeah. you. We do get a joke where Mrs. Garrett has a little Cadillac. One of the things at the counter, yes. she says, maybe would she like a little Cadillac? And the wife says, that's too good for her. You got a Datsun? 
That's funny. I love the wife. I loved the wife. (laughs) She was great. But I have the same thing in my notes. It's like they just needed them to go away for the scene to resume when Gwen enters. And that is the line. Why don't you look for something over there? You couldn't something. But look in the towel display. Like you couldn't name something. Uh, Exactly. We have, you know, well, check out... (sighs) Check out the figurines and the greeting cards. We have a lot of things there that you won't find anywhere else for the person who has everything. Andy, come get them and show them something that they might like. There are other people working there, but no, no. She can't interrupt his mime performance. She she can't interrupt the mime. How dare you? I love that you both came at it from an acting and directing standpoint. And I was like, oh, the customer service, Mrs. Garrett, that you're offering... Your guess. Why don't you look over there? Yeah. <laughs> Get lost. My friend's coming in. That's the equivalent of a customer service rep being like, "Get the fuck away from me." Yeah, it's crazy. That actress Jane Anderson, the woman who says, um, "Give me a Dotson," uh-huh. went on to become an M- three-time Emmy award-winning playwright, um, and she has two Emmys for writing and producing. Olive Kitteridge, which starred the wonderful Frances McDormand. Oh, yes. Oh, that's very impressive. I didn't look well, her up. I didn't know that. Thank you yeah, for that. Yeah. So when you are in shows that aren't well written, you learn things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the lesson. True. Yeah. <laughs> so then when Gwen comes in, this is the first time she's seeing the store because she ran out so fast from the house in the back. And so she says, wow, look at this. She's impressed. I never imagined you here. And Mrs. Garrett says, well, life doesn't always turn out the way we expect it, does it? And she's like, no, it doesn't. And she says, oh. And Edna kind of says, so it's it's still hard, isn't it? And she says, yeah, meaning Jack died two years ago. She's still dealing with the death of her husband. And Mrs. Garrett says, I think about Jack a lot. You know, when I was putting this store together, I always thought, what would Jack think? I never said it out loud. It was never words. It's not a person I ever discussed in words or voice wave patterns with any other human being that heard me. But I, real, Jack was, he was walking with me like Jesus, really and truly. Mm-hmm. He was such a help to me after the divorce. See, this is where we have the, the separation had to be earlier. Um, and he always made me feel special. Again, this waxing on about how wonderful Jack was. And then Gwen, wow, we turn this on a dime. Mm -hmm. You are unbelievable. And to try and justify how cordial and pleasant and matter of fact that first scene was, to justify this, she says, this is where I draw the line. I thought I'd get some pleasure from watching your performance, but I don't. And believe me, and I should do the elocution, from watching your performance, but I don't. And believe me, it is the performance of a lifetime. Mrs. Garrett's like, what in the holy fuck? What what the fuck am I? I'm talking about the relationship you had with my husband. 15 years of deceiving me. Are you trying to deny it now? And now the customers in Andy are overhearing and they're all like, ooh, this is juicy. And she, Edna's like, I, what are you talking about? Well, 
Jack's been gone two years, but it's only recently that she worked up the courage to start cleaning out his study and found letters, letters that he and Edna exchanged over a period of 15 years. And Edna says, well, they were innocent. We were just friends. And she says, oh, but you conveniently forgot our home address. So you were mailing them to him at work. And he forgot to mention that he ever was in touch with you privately. And she quotes one of the letters with much love, Edna. Mm -hmm. And she throws them down on the counter and we go to commercial. Well, they cut it for the syndicated version. They cut out her throwing down the letter and going, bitch. <laughs> that, that, that did happen. I, I don't know if you saw the same version. I did. Yeah. That's... <laughs> but it was very it was very forward when she said it. She said, bitch. And it was very forward. Well, during commercial, Alice, this is where I like to do a little short interview with my guest and uh, learn about you, your life, and your career in the performing arts in Central Florida. So Alice, let me ask you just a, a sort of light McTour of your life. You've already mm. told us you were born in, no, were you born here and then you moved to Sweden? Yes, my dad was in the Navy. So mm. I was actually born in Jacksonville at the Navy base, moved, we were in all up the East Coast. We went to the West Coast, Vancouver, Washington, back to the Pentagon, then from the Pentagon to Stockholm, then my dad was at the Navy base here in Orlando. At the Naval Training Center. Yes. That is now nice. Baldwin Park. That is exactly correct. But you said you went to Winter Park High School while you were living here. So do you consider uh, Orlando and Winter Park to be your hometown, like where you grew I, up? Or I do now. I, I because now I have been in Orlando longer than I moved around. <laughs> so when did you start first performing? Oh, it was really early. I mean, I really knew early. When we lived in Vancouver and I was in kindergarten, I was taking ballet classes and I was taking piano. Um, at five, I was sounding out on my little Schroeder-like piano, think, think, think. I was sounding out records. Wow. Um, and so my mother took me to piano lessons. I took uh, ballet there, was very serious about it. Um, and then went to Sweden. So I was always in choirs. I was sang in choirs and went to Sweden, sang in choirs there. Um, we sang with ABBA on their last tour. Oh, wow. Yes, we're the, we're the children's choir that was on their last album. Wow. And we sang with them in both Stockholm and Göteborg in, um, in their wow. last concerts. So this was always my thought was being on the stage. And then will. did you end up studying after high school? Did you formally study? Where did you go? I did. After graduating from Winter Park High School, I went to Rollins College and went to the theater program there. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a very production oriented um, theater program, which is what I wanted. I want to be on the stage. Um, went to New York a bunch of times, didn't like it. Um, uh, just wasn't, just wasn't my thing. And I'm all, I'm also, I played all of the old ladies in shows at Rollins. Oh, yeah. I've never, ever been an ingenue ever, ever, <laughs> ever, ever. <laughs> um, so had a real understanding that um, my career didn't start till I was 30, mm -hmm. you know, that I wasn't really, because nobody was going to hire a 21 year old to play. Oh, yeah. 
Nancy Walker. Yeah, <laughs> Ida Morgan Stern. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, but I just wanted to be, I really wanted to be in regional theater. That's where I thought I belonged. Um, Mm-hmm. And that's when things started to happen here in Orlando with Universal and with um, Disney's MGM Studios. And there was acting work to be had. Mm-hmm. And so I was at Universal for a very long time. Uh, what roles did you do at Universal? I was at the Murder, She Wrote show. Oh, sure. Yeah. And so then from there, I trained into your show, into um, horror makeup. Mm-hmm and did that for a long time and um game lab and something else i can't remember what else i did there um and then came over to um disney because i I also worked with sac theater from the time that i got out of college i worked with them doing renaissance fairs Mm -hmm. i did a lot of theater downtown i did stuff at the shakespeare festival i did stuff at the orlando rep um you know, the morning shows there. So I was doing stuff all all the time. And um, every single person at World Showcase Players left one year Hmm. um, because the cruise lines opened and they opened some improv shows and um, and that opened up some things at Pleasure Island. So the entire cast of the World Showcase Players left. So uh, I was really the only one that knew what street theater was because all of these people had left and they hired a whole bunch of new people. Yeah. Um, and they just didn't understand the style. They didn't know what it was. Yeah. Um, but they picked it up pretty quickly and we had a great time and kind of had a wonderful cast. And I was there for, oh gosh, 93 to 2003. Like that. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good run. Off and on. Yeah, I was there, you know, it's a year to year contract. So some years I was there full time sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a child during that. I had different things that I did. So sometimes I would go part time. Sometimes I would come back full time. You know, yeah. did the holiday storytellers, did the magical gatherings, all that kind of stuff. So um, that's where I was for a long time. And then the American Idol experience. And uh, I, I really haven't uh, kept up with you much this last decade. Yeah. I'm sorry to say. So where are you decade. now? <laughs> One of the things that I was doing. Um, actually all the time that I was at World Showcase Players was I was writing a lot. Um, Cause in my, my view about being an actor and especially about being an actor in a theme park is that, you know, it's potentially has a limited time to it. Um, especially when you're a woman of a certain <laughs> age, because immediately after 35, you have to put a bun on the top of your head as you mm. can tell by Edna Garrett. Tell me about um, it. <laughs> exactly. And so I tried directing. I tried show directing at Disney and I didn't I didn't love that. Producing was not my thing. Numbers and Excel spreadsheets are not my thing. Stage managing, nope. So I, I felt like writing could be another avenue in the show business. And so I started doing marketing writing and writing. Um, I wrote a book and uh, did a lot of did a lot of writing as my as my other thing um, and was looking for that path. And during, while I was at American Idol, I had a gig where I was doing stuff at Disney Event Group too, where I mm-hmm. was um, helping them with the, facilitate the sales, um, okay. the, oh, you know, the break-ins, but I wasn't the actor, I was the facilitator in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, so that helped me move more towards marketing 
Um, so when I left Disney in 2014, in the month of August, my TA at Disney Institute ended. They changed the site visits at DEG and eliminated my role. The American Idol experience closed and World Showcase Flyers closed. In the words of Mark Catlett, he said to me, everything you've touched here has died. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Mark. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) <laughs> so um, I had some interviews uh, other places to, to be a writer and I started as a copywriter at um, Dr. Phillips Center and I was writing promotional materials about shows and eventually moved into being a public relations um, specialist and manager and I'm a publicist for Broadway shows and um, copywriter and that's really what I do now and for, for the last six weeks I've been opening Broadway shows and opening the Emerson Colonial Theater uh, putting shows on sale because um, all of the shows are reopening at the same time and they're all they all went on sale in the last six weeks mm. and um, all the ad agencies and all the theaters their marketing directors are all either laid off or furloughed or they left and got other jobs and so people were really scrambling and a, a friend of mine works at an ad agency in New York and he called me and said, can you help me? And so that's been really, really, really exciting and really fun. I put 12 shows on sale at the um, Emerson Colonial Theater in Boston, um, which was just thrilling and um, helped put a bunch of shows on Broadway on sale in the last couple of weeks. Um, so that's what I do. Oh, um, wow. And I teach these workshops on storytelling that's really that's kind of my main content my main writing thing I'm writing a book on it right now on how to use storytelling uh to connect with your audience so if you're a nonprofit or an entrepreneur you want to use storytelling in your marketing in your donor newsletters in your e-newsletters all of that kind of stuff so I teach them how to do that so I did a seminar yesterday for a nonprofit. I'm doing a seminar next week um, and I have uh, a podcast called Story Maven, where I interview people, we talk about story principles, and then I help people apply those principles back to understanding how to use story in their marketing um, and how to be, because I just, I just have a heart for people in nonprofits, because we've all been in the nonprofit world ourselves. Yeah, we're actors. And, Our lives are nonprofit. Yeah. And, and entrepreneurs. We have had to kind of, we've had to kind of promote ourselves. And here's the thing. It's exhausting because you're not only doing the job of being an executive director or being an actor, but then you have to figure out how to promote yourself and how to make the picture right and how to, what is the sales thing and who am I contacting and how do I write this letter? It's, it's just overwhelming. And if that isn't your thing, you know, you don't have the tools. And I have all of the storytelling tools because for Mm -hmm. 20-something years, I stood out on the street trying to convince people to come listen to me in the heat and (laughs) was able to do it consistently. So so I take all of those tools. And um, so hopefully the book will be coming out end of this year. Um, Nice. What is the book called? I started talking about, don't you wish you had a fairy godmother who could wave a wand wave a magic wand and make storytelling easier for you. I kind of started using that. And so right now the working title is Story Magic, How to Use the Power of Story to Create a Bond Between You and Your Audience. Mm, nice. That, just, that rolls right off the tongue. 
Alice. <laughs> you should hear the others. <laughs> no, I just wanted to throw that at I just wanted to throw that at you after you gave us such a great build-up. The great title. I might have said this is my story and I'm sticking to it. You know, a quick good title. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, Alice, it has been great kind of reconnecting with you because uh we really didn't have a lot of uh, green room time, GRT, as we call it. GRT, and the best. We didn't have a lot of that back at the American Idol experience. So uh, it's been great to kind of re-get to know you and reacquaint myself with, with you and your career right now. But David, go ahead, say it. Say it, David. Well, Alice Fairfax, enough about you. We need That's to get back. about me. <laughs> we need to get back to this conundrum, this yes. drama. Well, and any time that Gwen and Edna, to me, it turns into an off-Broadway play. It shifted very dramatically yeah. once Gwen showed up. And we have to say, uh, Charlotte Ray is on her way out of the series right now. Like, she already was trying to cut back her role. This is weird that we have such a Mrs. Garrett-centric episode. We haven't seen mm. one of these in so long. Mm. I think it was their last chance to like try to get an Emmy nomination for her this, Maybe. this episode. But it's very um, dramatic. I love when they come back and they, they talk about the affair and Andy's given everybody th the story and suddenly he becomes a 10 year old boy. He's like, I can't say it. Yeah. I can't say it. What? You were talking about fucking stewardesses on the last episode. Yeah. What? I have to say, George is quite wonderful in the scenes with Andy. They're, they're yeah. quite, I, I, I feathered her, but it was very, I thought it was very authentic and very real, this interchange of like, do you know what that means? Oh, good. I didn't want to explain it to you. I thought that was really wonderful. Yeah, what an affair is. <laughs> yes. So at one point, George sits on the back of the couch and puts his shoes on the cushion where people, this is relating to Matthew with hating people sitting their ass on the counter of the store. I was like, oh, okay, well, now I wish you were sitting on the counter in the store. At least that I know we could wipe clean. I've never been so jealous of a couch. Uh. <laughs> but the girls come in and Andy, having overheard this conversation between Gwen and Edna and asking George, should I say anything? I didn't know what to do. Well, the girls come in and pretty quickly it's it's divulged and the girls are like, oh, well, that's weird. Hmm. Wonder if it's true. I don't know. And someone says, you know, it does happen. But this is Mrs. Garrett. And then Natalie turns and says, well, I wouldn't have believed it about my own father. But, you know, you can't trust anybody. Now, show Bible this, moment. Is it show Bible? Okay, good. Show I'm Bible saying, moment. I certainly hope we've we've discussed this before. <laughs> Season three, episode 17, called The Affair, where Natalie catches her dad and his mistress. And honestly, Alice, without a hint of sarcasm or irony, Natalie, Mindy Cohn, had never performed as an actor before the show. Ever. She was hired from a school's from a girl's school to be on this show. That episode, and she's like three seasons in or something, is yeah, probably some three. of the best acting that this little girl they threw at this little girl, and she was wonderful in that episode. Mm. The emotion mm. she pulled out, I don't know how she did it, 
but my favorite is like because at first I was like where does Natalie get off like uh, this fabricated drama that you yeah. get from sitcoms we already had the weird fabricated drama of Gwen acting perfectly normal in the yeah. first scene and then suddenly turning on Edna well now we've got this thank god we have Joe where she's like uh, could we at least give them the benefit of the doubt here? And this is Joe's line verbatim. You're making up a story. Somebody overheard a conversation he shouldn't have been around for. Mrs. Garrett never lies. She bakes cookies and she knits. And it's true. Um, is and- there a coming out episode for this character? How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> What are, are you, you implying? In, what What are you saying, Alice? I nothing. What, no, where she wow. comes into her own, where she comes out of her shell and comes into her own. When she marries a man named Rick Bonner in season nine. Oh, poor man. <laughs> <laughs> and for a little surprise. I, I, I have to try that. I have to try and duplicate the sound you just made. Oh. <laughs> disappointment no but her her actions have caused us to have a diesel horn sound play when something she says or does in the show is specifically lesbianic yeah and there's a lot of it yeah a lot a lot of lesbian stuff going on yes so oh Natalie ends the scene with saying, well, after six years of talking about trust and loyalty and friendship, I'd be more than a little disappointed if it was true. Screw you, Natalie. Oh, but it gets better. Screw you. I Uh, couldn't agree more, but I wasn't fully screw you, Natalie, till the next scene when Natalie full on confronts Mrs. Garrett. Except that the camera angle. Can we discuss what? What? What is the director? He doesn't have, there were no iPads. He didn't have a a smartphone. He wasn't, he must've been reading a book at the time. I agree. The shot is full on face of of Mrs. Garrett. And was she wearing the midi dress then? The teal midi dress? She wore this fabulous teal midi dress. I think so. I think so, yeah. Until she wore the red velour. nightgown house dress that that all women over the age of 35 had it was required to wear it was standard issue yes yes Um, yes it was um but poor natalie does this whole dramatic confrontation scene with and he's shooting her back yeah she's to the camera she's trying to beat around the bush like you know gee i had a tough day today this happened that happened then i uh, find out that a friend may have been cheating on her best friend with her husband. You know, uh, I'm not sure how I can trust this friend ever again. So th- maybe because she's trying to be be oblique about it or something, they said, well, let's shoot her from the back because she's kind of, because she's not being direct, you know, let's shoot her from the back. Finally, moment. when we cut to the reverse shot, it's over the other side and you see Natalie's face and Edna's, but yeah, the, it was like, it did linger a little too long on like, is is that really, did they really plan and stage this shot to look like this intentionally? Really? Very weird. 
Finally, Mrs. Garrett. What he was doing during this yeah. episode. Mrs. Garrett is. A coffee. Uh, yeah. Mrs. Garrett is a little bit on the defensive. But she says, we were just friends. And she says, I didn't explain it to Gwen because I couldn't. And, and Natalie is just kind of like, yeah, right, whatever. And storms out. Like, this is left in this thing. And Mrs. Garrett does say, I'm tired of what, what is happening here. Why am I having to justify this to every person here? Who comes through this door? Every person who comes through this door. <laughs> This hotbed of activity. This I know. It's okay. Now who's being dramatic? This inflatable palm tree store. <laughs> then we get this weird little short scene of Edna that night reading one of the letters, and we can hear the voice of Jack saying, My dearest Edna, Gwen has just gone to sleep. Dot, dot. I can finally be alone with my thoughts and you dot 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 again implicational like oh this does sound like it might be an affair I wonder what's going on Ugh. but very quickly that scene fades out and we come back to the next day Edna and Gwen on the couch and Red Edna velour robe. in the velour robe yep actually I think it's that night she calls her there that night it's she's still in the same outfit and we later do find out it's midnight I'm sorry it is that same uh -huh. night so yeah, because um, Gwen's still wearing her gloves. Yes, yeah, yeah. she is. <laughs> she was not letting go of those. I don't know where this director is. I may need the gloves. Did she get an Emmy nomination for Best Gloves that year? I think she might have. <laughs> so, Maybe. Uh, best stage business. Yeah, so Edna says, fine. We corresponded, and it started 15 years ago. You should know you were there. And it's like, what? Well, it was the night after the opening of one of his restaurants. We don't know this. This is new information. So apparently he was a restaurant owner, restaurant plural. And he was reading a poem at a party or something. And as soon as Edna says he was reading a poem, Gwen instantly shuts it down and says, oh, that was a waste of his time. And she's like, what do you mean? You can't earn a living writing poetry. My dad proved that. I wrote that line down. Like, yeah. Wow. Whoa. We're, we're getting Just, pretty deep pretty wow. quick here. Wow. I am confused, though. This is where my confusion with her plot line came, because he's not making a living as a poet. It sounds like a hobby. This and is Anne's. <laughs> Oh, it was, I wrote down, that was the first laugh of the episode for me. As mm -hmm. after she said, my dad proved that. <laughs> so I was like, your, your wayward poet dad who didn't hold a job because he was writing bad poetry? Like yeah. how many people does that happen to? Like, and she says he did have trouble supporting the family. Apparently he was like, yes. no, I'm going to make it on my poetry. I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to stock the shelves over at the Piggly Wiggly or wherever they were. Or teach English. Teach yeah. English. Teach English. Yeah. <laughs> Write poems. But Gwen. Have very... your lunch break. <laughs> but, then, but Gwen very quickly, after talking about her dad, says, I married a doer. I didn't want a starving artist. And that mm -hmm. was the last poem he ever wrote. Meaning, I, I, you know, I shut that down, patting myself on the back. I said that fucking shit is not happening mm. 
But did he restaurant. also play golf? Did he also play golf? Did he also like, did he play the, was there anything? Was he allowed to have any hobby, Gwen? Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. I mean, good Lord. Work, 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 yep. Jack. But yeah. in response to that was the last poem he ever wrote, Edna mm-hmm. says, no, that's the last one you heard. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. what? Jack asked Edna if he could send her something that he wrote. It was one of his poems. And she said, that's all the correspondence was. It was 15 years of him writing poems and me writing comments. Knowing how you felt about the poetry, Gwen, you fucking bitch. He asked me to write him at the office. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, and then Edna the says- issue, though. I'm huh? issued. I'm, I'm on You take Gwen. issue, Alice, what is your issue? Well, that's nice elocution. <laughs> My issue is that sharing one's poetry with someone and asking for their response is an intimate act. Oh. And I'm on Team Gwen. I'm on Team Gwen here. I think interesting. I think that Edna knew this was intimate and something he was sharing with only her that he felt he couldn't share with his wife. And as her good friend, of many, many years who we've never heard about before. <laughs> she should have encouraged her good friend, Jack, to share his most intimate, his artistry, his heart. Yeah. With his I, wife. I'm, I'm team Gwen all the way here. Okay. I, I, and that is, I, I, I totally get that. I get it because yeah, the term emotional affair did not exist in 1985. That is something that would probably, this is, dancing very close to because we know how much she admired him. So you do get the sense that, well, no, this was this and this was just poems and responses, but you know, there was a tiny bit of her going, this is a piece of him that just belongs to me. I felt that way. But yeah. then she reads the poem. Yeah, but then, yeah, she, <laughs> but, but here's the thing. She gives her the letters. I mean, it's one of those, if there was anything slightly untoward, why would she give her that? She says, here, and she, she says, but I read the letters. And Edna says, read them again. It's, there's nothing there. And read these. These are the ones that he wrote to me. So honestly. These are all the poems that are apparently about Gwen. Yeah. And so she reads one in of them. A, and, in a rhyming scheme. Too. Oh, my God. And... It's like, yeah, I, I didn't think you'd have to worry about him being a failure at based on this. was a restaurateur. Yeah. I'm sitting here with my pen writing about Gwen. <laughs> I don't know when. <laughs> I hate to laugh at the, at the man's heart. It, it I've was... given an impassioned plea for his intimate soul. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Seuss, he ain't, let's just say. <laughs> I mean, uh, no, no, Dr. Joyce Brothers, he ain't. Uh, so we we have the moment where because she reads the poem and she says, he wrote it for me. And she says, here, I should have given you these a long time ago. And can you forgive me for keeping this from you? Because I did keep it from you. At least Edna fesses up to that. And probably the best thing that Edna says in the whole episode when he asked if we could continue corresponding, 
I thought to myself, no husband and wife can be everything to each other. This way, Jack would have someone to share his poetry with and you didn't have to be bothered with it because clearly you fucking hated it. Not, not bothered, traumatized because of the father, the no, horrible I know. failed poetry, how kind Jack was. I don't want to re-traumatize you. Yeah. Show me on the whiteboard where the poet touched you. <laughs> Show me. Show me. So Such the last trauma. bit is Gwen says, what time is it? And she says, midnight. And she says, well, my flight leaves in seven hours. Is that enough time to do the gossiping we wanted to do? Well, and they get all snuggly. They both struggle to bring one of their legs up on the couch. They're both like, and the weird touching again, the, like the director didn't have any closure. So they do this kind of weird, like almost poking at each other's face kind of. Just yeah. give actors something to do, but you need to physically give them something to do. Well, did yours cut off before mine did? Because Edna full on unzipped her house coat. Did you not? You guys did. Oh, I got a completely different ending. Yeah, syndicated. Okay. This the syndicated version cuts a lot of things out of it. Yes. So thank God Edna and her old friend, dear friend, closest childhood friend, Gwen. Thank God things are okay with them. Because yeah. we will never see her again. Gwen did not attend Edna's almost wedding last season. Gwen will not attend Edna's actual wedding next season. She disappears no. off the face of the earth. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a shame. Yeah. That's a shame. Yep. She's, she's busy reading a light in the attic. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so last impressions about the episode. Uh, well, we always try to make notes for the writers and, you know, send the rewrites back in our time machine. Uh, there's a scene, an important scene missing. As Gwen and Edna are now friends at the end of the episode, we needed Natalie to come downstairs and yes. be all, oh, oh, God, you guys were talking loud. You woke me up and have Mrs. Garrett say, good. Yeah, here's the letters. Here we yeah. are. Right. No, not here's let it. You don't get to read these and you don't get to ever question my integrity, you ungrateful little fucking bitch. Oh. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. This is divisive. I, this is a divisive episode. Divisive. Don't you think, don't you think there should have been some sort, even not not what I'm doing, but don't you think at some point there could have should have been something to do with Natalie getting slapped? For condemning Mrs. Garrett and so readily. So I, I don't care about Natalie's trauma with her dad having an affair. It's like, that's not Mrs. Garrett. You spent more I time did. in your life with Mrs. Garrett than you have with your father. He shipped you I off do. to a boarding school. I do feel like we could have trimmed the whole shop beginning and really had the episode be about this. Mm-hmm. I feel Agreed. like there was room to have this be a real story. Yeah, because the B plot line of Andy as the mime, that doesn't really have a payoff. It's just she dismisses him at the end. We know well, he's tired. I mean, the mime was fine. It's It was the newspaper. Let's cut the newspaper. Yeah, agree. the newspaper. Well, Alice, this has been awesome reconnecting with you, catching up on your life and your career. 
And uh, I would love it if we might have a chance to do this again. This was wonderful. And I, I feel like it was so interesting to kind of really look at this and dissect it because they are some really committed actors, Charlotte Ray and uh, Ann Jackson and even George Clooney and working to get better, working to be good at their craft. Um, and so it was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Telling the story, as it yeah. were. Well, thank you, Matthew, for kind of engineering this because you're, you are closer to Alice than I. So thanks again for doing this. Well, I thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Smooches, my dear, and goodbye. Mwah. Love you both. Mm. Bye. I love Alice. I love Alice. And there you have it. That was Alice Fairfax. I will post a link to her Story Maven podcast. I didn't even know she had a podcast, and I haven't had a chance to listen yet. I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing some of her stuff and her storytelling expertise. Now, the only other point I didn't get to make as I was finishing off the episode and saying I really wanted Natalie to get some sort of comeuppance for doubting Mrs. Garrett's integrity, uh, I just want to remind everybody that it has been discovered over the course of this podcast that of all of the girls, Natalie is the one who is the most ethically challenged, including, but not limited to, season two in Bought and Sold when she lied directly to her mother on the phone to get her to send more money so she could buy more of the expensive Countess Calve cosmetics from Blair. Remember that one? Then there was last season, just recently, she was forging names on the petition to save the drive-in movie theater in the last drive-in. And then she set up Joe and Blair on computer dates and lied to their faces and sent them out with these two boys under false pretense in a Love at First Bite. And it, 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 it's like, really, Natalie? You're, you're going to have a, a debate with Mrs. Garrett over ethics? Mm-mm. Nope. Not on my watch. Nuh-uh. I'm shutting that down right here, right now. So next week, we're going to be watching Season 7, Episode 12, called Ballroom Dance. And our special guest is going to be our magnificent dancer friend, Kristen Sciola. You can watch the show for free at dailymotion.com or on the Roku channel, I will post links in the show notes and on this episode's webpage. That is all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, the facts of life are all about you. Let's Face the Facts was created, produced, written, hosted, and edited by the wonderful David Almeida. Our theme song was beautifully arranged and recorded by Ned Wilkinson. Please visit facethefactspod.com for supplemental photos and videos, links to social media, and ways that you can support the show. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. This is Matthew Arder saying tune in again next week for another thrilling episode of Let's Face the Facts. <laughs> <laughs>